Good morning. Well, we can do better than that. Good morning. All right. Let's get to the good stuff. You have your Bibles. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're going to look at a few verses there and then a few verses in Acts chapter 7. I'm Pastor Andrew Oates. I'm the executive pastor here, and I'm glad you braved the cold weather and the snow. This is the most snow that I've seen in 20 years without skis on my feet. I've uh, been in Florida, um, sheltered, I guess, from this. In fact, there was a time where there was snow on the ground in all every state in the Union except the state of Florida. So... Um, in fact, I think Jimmy Martin, one of our elders, is in the Keys, and he was sending texts. Oh, I hear it's snowing there, rubbing it in as he's taking selfies of him and his wife, um, you know, on the beach. Acts chapter 6, and uh, we're looking at the Apostles' Creed, and what you have when you came in is you got this little worship guide or bulletin or whatever you want to call it. Um, what I want to do is I want to start by saying the Apostles' Creed together. And so everybody pull your uh, worship guide out, and everybody stand up with me, and I want to affirm Christianity. I want to affirm the core essential beliefs of our faith. So let's stand up. Let's say this together, and then I'll tell you why in a little bit. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen or amen. You can have a seat. What makes us Orthodox or what makes us Christians, what connects us to the 21 martyrs that were killed in Libya is this creed. It's this creed. This is what we believe, and it's divided into three parts, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last few weeks, Pastor Sean's been talking about Jesus and the Son, and today, this morning, I get the privilege of finishing this section on the Apostles' Creed, and the part that we're going to look at this morning is He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. It's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And I hope to unpack it in our lives. And there's so much that can be said about the ascension, about the right hand of the Father, about the coming again to judge the living and the dead, that there's no way that I could probably do it in the short amount of time that we have together. But we're going to attempt to and we're going to look at it in a way, I hope, that is beneficial and life-changing for you. Every time I read the story that we're going to read in a second, it, it inspires me. It inspires me to love Jesus more. It inspires me to know his word more. 
So Acts chapter 6, and I want to I look at, if you're taking notes, I want to encourage you to look um, and, and follow along. But Acts chapter 6, I have the Pew Bible or the Chair Bible or whatever you want to call it. If you don't have a Bible, take it with you. It's on page 835. And verse 8 says this. Stephen, a man full of power, God, full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started a debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Sicilia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blasphemy Moses and even God. This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen and brought him before the high council. Verse 13, the lying witnesses said, This man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Verse 15, at this point, everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. Then in chapter 7, you're going to, I can't read it and I wish I could, it's just for time's sake, but I encourage you this week to read it. And he starts in Abraham and he goes and gives a historical perspective of the gospel of Jesus Christ and very much from a Jewish perspective. And then he gets to the point where he brings the so what, the end of this sermon. And so turn in your Bibles over to Acts chapter 7, verse 51. And he says this, you stubborn people, you are heathen. Now this is huge because these guys were the religious leaders of the day. You are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Verse 54, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation, and they shook their fists at him in rage. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing, underline that word, standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. And they put their hands over their ears and began shouting, and they rushed at him and dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He fell to his knees shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. The question I have for us this morning is, will your life bring Jesus to his feet? Let's pray. Father, your word is truth and it's powerful and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. 
I pray that it would divide us between the bone and the marrow and the soul and the spirit. And I pray, Lord God, you would transform us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Help us to see the beauty of Christ this morning. Help us to love him more and more each and every moment of every day. And help us, Lord God, to live our lives in light of your return. We look to you now, Father. And as always, Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to unpack, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come to judge the living and the dead. And I want to, I want to do it through the perspective of Stephen and why this is important. And as I unpack the creed and I do it in the perspective of Stephen, I think about the 21 Egyptians that were killed and beheaded and the fact that they believed this creed and it cost them their life. And I think that for us, we would be remiss not to look at this creed and to look at what we believe and recognize that for brothers and sisters all across the world, this belief, this truth that we hold to cost people their lives. And, it, and I think it begs the question for us is, are, are we willing to not just die for Jesus, but because that's not really a possibility too much in this country, but are we willing to live for him? Because that's a life that would bring Jesus to his feet. If you're taking notes, I want you to kind of unpack this. He ascended into heaven, and to understand this, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father, this statement speaks of Jesus Christ, his authority. And if, and if you're looking at the notes, Jesus Christ, our authority from heaven, Acts chapter, um, if you, Acts chapter uh, 1, verse 9 through 11, you see that Jesus ascends up into the heavens, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. I want to read for you 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21 and 22, because it speaks of this authority that he has. The apostle Peter writes, now Christ has gone to heaven. He is seated in the place of honor next to God. And all the angels and authorities and powers accept his authority. Now, the reason that I want to start here is that Jesus is our authority from heaven is this fact that we live in a society that which we have Jesus and we have Satan and they're ever at odds and they're fighting. And that sometimes Satan wins and sometimes Jesus wins. It's very dualistic in our theology. And the reality is that it's Jesus, the supreme authority, and Satan is a defeated angel who recognizes and sees the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ. Whether we recognize it or not, Satan is a defeated foe, and Jesus Christ has all authority. Now, I want to unpack for you kind of the ascension but before we do, I want to begin with the gospel. Jesus' death and resurrection brought us salvation. If you by faith receive, believe and receive that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again from the grave, these are the truths that we accept 
that bring eternal life. Now, we receive this message because we can't save ourselves. Now, we need to understand this because only Jesus could do this. He was sinless. He was perfect. He died in our place. And the fact that he, that he ascended into heaven now gives him authority. Because he defeated death, he's the only one in human history ever to rise from the dead. If you rose from the dead, I would consider your claims of authority. But since you didn't, I won't. Since I haven't, don't. We're all in the same boat. We need Jesus. We need him. Jesus Christ, death and resurrection brought us salvation. Number two, we need to understand and see that Jesus is our authority from heaven, that Jesus' ascension brings us glorification and intercession. Now, if I could take you through Romans very quickly, it would basically look like this. The beginning, we look at sin and how man is putrid and can't save themselves. Then we see the glorious grace of God and his justification of the believer, which is not just as if I'd never sin. It's the righteousness of Christ that covers us. Then we look at his sanctification in the, in the middle of Romans as we get to up to chapter 8 or so. And the sanctification is his work in our life, this continuing work and how we should live it through Romans 12 and stuff. And even in Romans 8, and he, he mentions this stuff called glorification. And what is glorification? Because his ascension assures our glorification. I want to define it for you. Glorification is the more excellent, more splendid form of the Christian. It's the best that will ever be in eternity. No more pain, no more suffering. Now, there's the resurrected body, and that's part of the glorification. When you looked at the resurrected body of Christ... You see the fact that Jesus passes through walls. You see that Jesus eats. You see that Jesus does these things in his resurrected body, but he had not yet been glorified. You see the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, where the apostle John, namely the disciple that Jesus, in whom he loved, they had an intimate relationship, saw Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, but did not recognize him by appearance because he was so splendid and glorified that, that, that he shone. John falls down and then recognizes Jesus when Jesus speaks to him. When Jesus speaks, those that are his children listen and know it's Jesus. And so this idea of this glorified state is the resurrected body on steroids. It's this idea that not only is it going to be better, it's going to even be better. Because we're going be, to be built in that moment for eternity to be with the Lord forever. And we are going to reflect the glory of God. Think about this in the Old Testament. When Moses saw God, the glory of God, not, not even saw him, but saw his back, the Bible says that his face shone with the glory of God. That everyone was like, cover your face, Moses, we can't look at you. I think Stephen in this moment, the glory of God was a little bit pulled back and the glory shone down on Stephen that his face looked like an angel, that he was reflecting some of the glory of God. Now, what makes Stephen special? Nothing. 
Absolutely nothing. In fact, the reason that they picked Stephen and these other seven guys to be deacons was because they needed somebody to wait tables. Can you see all of the religious leaders of the day? And then they're asking questions. They don't want to go to the apostles to ask questions because they're like, man, those guys are probably, they've been with Jesus, and man, those guys are pretty awesome. Let's ask the table waiter over here what he thinks about Jesus. Uh-oh, he's doing miracles too. He's doing signs. Uh-oh, he knows the word of God too. He knows the Old Testament. He knows Jesus. This encourages me because it doesn't matter where you are, what role you play in the kingdom of God. If you have the spirit of God, guess what? You can talk to the religious leaders of the day. You can talk to the enemies of the cross. You can talk to anyone and proclaim Christ. And they will get baffled. In fact, that was true of the apostles. It was true of Stephen. And it's true of us. Have you been with Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Do you recognize his authority from heaven? So the glorification is this more splendid form, but it also brings our intercession. Now, glorification is that which is coming for the believer. Intercession is what is happening now for us. Now, I want to define this for you, and this is going to be a lot of scripture, and we're not going to be able to read it all, but I want to kind of give you these terms and these words of what intercession is, and I would encourage you to go back and look at Jesus interceding for us. Intercession is Jesus Christ sustaining Christians before the Father. Let me stop there. I can't live this Christian life out. I don't know, maybe you can. In fact, when I was young and I prayed to receive Christ and I was like, Jesus, I want you to have my life and everybody looked so perfect, and I couldn't be perfect, and I was like, man, how are they living so perfect, and I'm struggling with this Christian life. I realized that they were all lying to me because they had issues too, and if you're here, guess what? We don't want you to be perfect. In fact, Jesus doesn't want, Jesus said the church is a hospital for the sick. It's the bride of Christ. I love my bride, but she's not perfect. I live with her. It's no offense. I love you, baby. I love you. <laughs> but it's because, well, here's the deal, but I love her anyway. That's the beauty. Intercession is Jesus Christ, though, sustaining us before the Father. Hebrews 7.25. Do we have that? Can we bring that up? Sometimes we have it, sometimes we don't. Therefore, he is able once and forever to save those who come to God through him. He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. Forever. He's at the right hand of the Father interceding for us, which means he's sustaining us. That this is the work of Christ. That the devil, day and night, is accusing us. Look at, look at Andrew. He's not perfect. Yes. And Jesus said, yes, but I died for him. And I covered him, and he's with me. That's what's, so beauty, that's what's so beautiful about the doctrine of justification, that it's the righteousness of Christ that covers us. So when God looks at us, he just doesn't see me. He sees the righteousness of Christ that has covered me. And therefore, I'm acceptable to be God because of it. And so, and this is what sustains me. 
Christ sustains me every day in my walk with him. And all Christians. So intercession is Jesus Christ sustaining Christians before the Father by defending, 1 John 2, 1, and caring, Romans 8, 34, for us during our time on earth. He defends us. As the devil accuses us every moment of every day, and let me tell you something, he sees it all, Christ is there defending us. And not just defends us, but he cares for us. He gives us his Holy Spirit that which we can live by. He doesn't leave us as orphans. Intercession is important because because of Christ being our authority from heaven, he's the one that can intercede for us. He's the one that promises us the future glory and the glorification of us. The third thing is this of how do we know he's our authority from heaven is that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father for us. Everyone instantly knew what this was first century because the rulers, whoever was at the right hand of the ruler was the most important and most powerful person in the empire. In fact, the the emperor was more of a figurehead, more of a little G deity that he tried to portray to people, but the person to his right was the one that really kind of ran the country ran the empire. So everybody understood was this, that when Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father of God, therefore you know that he is all, in all, through all, authority over all. Let's look at these verses together. Colossians 3.1, it says this, since you have been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says this, For there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. This is exciting because here's the deal. I don't, I, it's this, I don't have to testify against myself when I stand before God one day. Christ, my intercessor, will testify for me. Romans 8, 1, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is exciting. When you you proclaim this in the creed, you're proclaiming the fact that Christ is my authority from heaven. Jesus sits at the right hand. He strengthens me. He knows me. He sees me. And he still loves me. That's what's so wonderful. The fact that, that my wife sees me, knows me, still loves me. Because she sees all of me. And we can fake it all we want, but Jesus sees us, still loves us, intercedes for us, and one day will glorify us. That's what we're proclaiming. That's what Stephen proclaimed. Secondly, Jesus Christ is everyone's authority on earth. Jesus Christ is everyone's authority on earth. Why did I divide up the authority in heaven and the authority on earth? It's important to recognize this because most of us don't recognize. Most people think this is the time of Satan or this is the power of Satan, and that's why the good and the evil. The reality is it's Jesus, all-powerful, Satan, way, 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 way down there, defeated foe. And the fact that we give credence in our dualistic theology 
to create Satan and Jesus battling heads with God here, we, de, we, we just de-deify Christ when we do that. And we make Satan way more powerful than he is. He's a defeated foe who recognizes the authority and supremacy of Jesus Christ in heaven and on this earth. And for us to think any differently, to, to pray any differently, is to de-deify Christ. Philippians 2.10 the Apostle Paul, in a, few weeks in our, a few weeks ago in our small group, we were talking about this, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess. The question is, you're either going to do it now or you're going to do it later. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Why? Most people don't recognize Jesus Christ as our authority. Why? Because we're rebellious by nature. Our sin nature makes us rebellious. We're Americans. We, li we live close. We're in Yorktown. Down with the crown. Forget those British. Right? We didn't want a king. Why? Because... We want to be our own authority. You read the Declaration of Independence about us self-governing. We govern ourselves. It's God, not government. That's the beauty. And rebellion by nature means that we have to recognize that Jesus Christ is everyone's authority on earth. And we either choose to live that way or we don't. Jesus Christ is king now. Romans 28, 18. Says, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. This was before he ascended. He already had the authority. And so the idea is, is this. If you pray in any other name, it's not going to work. All authority on heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. He's king now. Most people that say, oh, Jesus is the coming king. No, the reality is he's king now. He's just not here now. He's in heaven interceding for us until all those that will be saved will be saved. And then in that moment, then he's going to come back for us. Then that's what we proclaim in this creed. That's what Stephen was proclaiming, that Christ is king now. And he was living and breathing fearlessly with great courage and boldness before people that he knew could kill him physically. But he didn't care because they couldn't touch him spiritually. They couldn't touch his soul. What did Jesus say? Don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the body and soul. Jesus is king now and will return. He is king when he returns. Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16, the, the, John basically says, I saw the heavens open. Is it up? And the white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. I love that, that little verse right there because there's a name that nobody has blasphemed. 
that Jesus has for himself. Because he's awesome and he's authoritative. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was, next slide, the, uh, that's, we skipped it, so it's all right. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the almighty like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at the thigh was written this title, King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus Christ is king now, and he will return. Second thing that we need to understand is that Jesus Christ will return for everyone on the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, this was an Old Testament principle as well as a New Testament that the Messiah will come back, that Jesus will return on the day of the Lord. Joel chapter 2, verse 31 says this, The sun will become dark, and the moon will turn to red, blood red, before that great and terrible day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, Joel understood this. First Thessalonians says that he's going to come and no one's going to know. That Christ is going to return on the day of the Lord. We don't talk about the day of the Lord very much. But you know what's so great about the day of the Lord? For us Christians, it's going to be awesome. It's going to be great. For those that don't have a relationship with Christ, it's going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. Because at that moment, they're going to see the person that they rejected. We live in a world that wants to disavow and disown all of God's authority. We want to be our own authority. And Jesus Christ is going to return on the day of the Lord. The awesome, the terrible day of the Lord. And it'll either be awesome for you or it's going to be terrible. It's what you do with Jesus Christ now that will determine that. And how you live now. Because here's the deal. I think there's going to be a lot of people that have received Jesus Christ that aren't living for him. And they're not going to be ready. He's going to return and they're going to be ashamed. And they're not going to have, they're gonna, their life is not going to reflect the beauty of Christ and his glory. And it can, though. The language that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians in, returning of, in the return of Christ and the language that's used all through the New Testament is that of Jesus being the bridegroom and the bride being the church. And everyone understood this. Let me give you some historical context in the first century of a Jewish wedding, first and second century, and the way that they did it in these small villages. And so when the Apostle Paul is talking about the return of Christ, and when people are talking about the return of Christ, and the bridegroom is coming, you need to understand this because it makes it all the sweeter when you read it, when Christ is returning. What happens in a Jewish wedding, you have two fathers, they come together and they agree on what the bride is worth, uh, 20 camels, okay. And then they give each other 20 camels. Then the father then takes the son under his wing and he gets him to start working. And he starts preparing a home, a place that he's going to bring his bride to. Jesus is doing this, John 14, 1. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am, there you will be also. 
And, he, and, and the, the, the son of the father works to create this space. And he, he doesn't know when it's done, completed. He's constantly improving it and making it better until the father looks and says, go get your bride. Then the son has the opportunity then, he calls all of his groomsmen, the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us, he calls all of his groomsmen together and says, we're going to go get the bride. And everybody celebrates. And he usually does this not in the heat of the day, not in the middle of the day. The, The father does this either early, early, early in the morning or late, late, late at night because he wants everybody to be ready. He wants everybody to know what's happening, that my son is getting married. So the, bride, the bridegroom calls all of his groomsmen. All the groomsmen come together. They make noise as they go through the village, and the, bride's groom, the, bride, the, the job of the, all of the, um, bride's, bride, the groomsmen is to say, the bridegroom's coming. And they yell it, the bridegroom's coming, the bridegroom's coming, make haste, get ready. And that's code to all of the bridesmaids and the bride to pretty herself up. She doesn't have a lot of time. I mean, they're going through the streets, and maybe he's taking 15 minutes to get through the streets, but she's got to be pretty ready. So like my wife, I mean, they, they did all kinds of stuff before we got married. I mean, she walked down, and it was like, wow. And she had spent hours on makeup and hair and, you know, nails and toenails and, I mean, I don't know, what other other stuff. They dipped her and stuff, and I, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> but she was gorgeous. She was ready. I was ready. And it was incredible. But in a Jewish wedding, you don't have that much time. So the bride is like quickly getting ready, and the bridesmaids are quickly getting ready. And then when the bridegroom comes, he opens the door, he walks in, and he grabs his bride, and he takes her back to the father, because that's where the father is there, and that's where the ceremony takes place, in front of the father, of the bridegroom. It's a great celebration, and all of the people come, and then there's a huge party afterwards, Think about this in our spiritual life. Think about this of, of what's going to happen. The father's going to look at the son and say, Jesus, go get your bride. And why is this important? Because we need to understand that if Jesus isn't your king now, then you're not going to be looking forward to his return when he returns. If you're not ready now, I don't know when he's going to return. Jesus said that only the Father knows. Are you ready for his return? Third thing, real quickly, I want to get through this in the next couple minutes. Jesus Christ stands for those who stand for us. Stephen, he looks up to the heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Why did he stand? I don't know. But maybe it was the sense of that he was in the presence of greatness. Have you ever sprung to your feet? I went to go see game three of the Miami Heat play in the NBA championship, and they won in the last second on a shot. 
and everybody was on their feet and everybody was jumping around and everybody was hugging and everybody, because we were in the presence of something great, something we'd never maybe seen before or maybe ever seen again. We couldn't sit down. We couldn't contain ourselves. Maybe Jesus is looking at Stephen's life and doing the same. He stands up. He stands up. Jesus stands with a cloud of witnesses who have gone before us. There's 21 Christian Egyptian martyrs who died. Stand as a cloud of witnesses. Along with all of those in Hebrews 11 that have gone before us. Not perfect people, but people in whom Christ had redeemed. Jesus remains faithful when we are not. This is the beauty of 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It gives me hope. It says, if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown or deny himself. Christ keeps us faithful. Philippians 1, 6 is true. He that began a good work in us will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Christ will do the work in our lives. And then number three, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In the presence of everyone, Stephen looks up and sees Jesus. And Jesus wasn't sitting, though. He was standing at the right hand of the Father. Maybe it was because Jesus couldn't contain himself because of the way Stephen had lived and the way that Stephen was about to die. Do you know my Jesus? Most of us would say, well, we're not, we're not going to have to die for Christ. Well, my response to that is, well, then live for him. Are you living your life for Jesus now? Not yesterday or tomorrow, but now. Do you have a relationship with him? Where do you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Of the 21 Christians who died in Libya by ISIS's hand, Yosef was someone who was beheaded. His brother recalls as he watched the video, he said, it made me so proud because I heard him call out, oh, Jesus, as they were taking his head off. He's a martyr for Christ. And I guess I look at this and I see that the time is short, that Christ is going to return. And I look at my life and I think, I better be ready. Is my life going to bring Jesus to its feet? Is, he, is my life going to be that? Am I living that way? Am I living in light of eternity? Or am I living for myself? Do you know Jesus? Because if you know him, if you truly know him, you'll want to love him and you'll want to follow him and you'll want to give him your life. He died on the cross for your sins. He rose again from the grave. By faith, receive him into your life. Let's pray. Father, for every man, woman, and child that's here, Lord, I pray that they would recognize you, Jesus, as their authority that they would recognize, that you would recognize, Lord God, them. That you would see them, Lord God. You see us, and you love us anyway. Jesus, fill us with your spirit. For those that don't know you, Lord God, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. 
I pray, Lord God, that after the service, they would come forward and talk with the people that are up here that would love to take a Bible and show them how they can have a relationship with Christ. Help them to call upon the name of the Lord now, in this moment, to be saved. Lord Jesus, we submit to you now our lives. Help us to do it on a moment-by-moment basis through the power of your Holy Spirit. Thank you for today. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the ways that we worship the Lord is through giving. The ushers are in place, and um, we give because God first gave to us. Freely you've received, freely give, Jesus says. Don't give grudgingly or out of necessity. The Apostle Paul says, give because God loves a cheerful giver. We give to the Lord because we love him, and he first loved us. So as we take this offering and as we sing, it's my prayer for us as a church, as Coastal Community Church, that we would live our lives and our lives in a way that would bring Jesus to his face. Let's take the offering. There's a lot of ice out there.